Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where S is for Skyfall, the third Daniel Craig James Bond film released in 2012, the year that marked the 50th anniversary of the Bond film franchise. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we do a deep dive into the 23rd Eon Bond film. While he takes a break from thinking on his sins, it's Mr. Brendan Duffy. (laughs) Hello. And making his James Bond A to Z podcast debut, he's been fully debriefed and declared fit for active service. It's Mr. Phil Noble Jr., editor of Fangoria magazine. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of this podcast. I listen to it pretty much every week, and uh, it's a lot of fun to join you guys. Oh, thank you. That's uh, very kind of you to say, Phil. With fans of yours as well, we um, follow your exports on uh, on James Bond uh, and friends. So uh, we know you're a man who, who who knows his Bond. So glad to have you on board. Um, let's kick things off um, before we talk about the film itself. Uh, first encounters with Skyfall, Brendan. When did you do you remember seeing it for the first time? No, I would have seen it at the cinema, but I don't even know what part of my life I was in it in 2012. <laughs> Anything pre, pre-COVID, no it's chance. It's gone. It's just gone. Yeah. What about, what about you, Phil? I did see, I saw a press screening, I think maybe a few days or a week before it came out here in the States. Uh, and I was, I think I was just vibrating in that screening because I had been waiting four years for the third one and I had put so much stock in, in it being good and it mattering and it, in it sort of counting, uh, that, that it wouldn't be four years of wasted time. I think I was so excited about all that. And, um, and I think one friend of mine had seen it beforehand and told me he, he liked it more than Casino Royale and he wasn't even a Bond fan. So I was like sort of really curious to see how it was going to hit. So it was, uh, it was a quiet, it wasn't a crowded screening. It was like about five critics in there. So it wasn't like a, a big, you know, crowd pleasing kind of scene, but it was, it was, uh, special i was very excited that day the anticipation was was unbelievable for this film uh thinking back on it um i was lucky enough to be working professionally doing what i do now as a film journalist when this film was sort of percolating and coming out so i'd seen quantum of solace at a press screening my one of my first press screenings and then the build-up to skyfall was just uh yeah the anticipation was was very high and I'll talk about a bit about I did one of the press events for it and I'll, I'll talk a bit about my, that later but I remember seeing this film uh there had been the premiere uh, but the screen I went to was at BAFTA um amazingly uh and it was quite a, a swanky screening for it it was a, it was a packed house um and the atmosphere for it was electric I, it really was you know and there was like um photo booths outside before you could take a picture with the skyfall logo all that sort of stuff but one thing i really remember was when i came out of it the news had broken that disney had brought lucasfilm and it just became like this whole the two things became very connected in my mind um but uh 
I loved it when I first saw it, and uh, we'll talk a bit about that um, a little bit later. Um, our, our thoughts on the movie, but uh, it's a, uh, for me, it's it's a very special special Bond film, um, and and with good reason. Looking back, Michael G. Wilson at the time said it was our fiftieth anniversary and twenty third film, and the pressure was on to make the best Bond ever. We had an extraordinary cast, an incredibly talented creative team, and an emotionally charged script. Um, and we'll explore some more of that in a second. But the synopsis for Skyfall. When Bond's latest assignment goes wrong, it leads to a calamitous turn of events. Undercover agents around the world are exposed and MI6 is attacked, forcing M to relocate the M agency. With the MI6 now compromised inside and out, M turns to the one man she can trust, Bond. So that's like a brief summary of the film. Um, but let's kick things off, as we always do, by looking at 2012 and what was going on at the time. Twenty twelve was a momentous year, you know, looking at it. There was there was lots going on. It was a year that the UK was doing a lot. It was the sixtieth anniversary of Queen Elizabeth II's reign. And the obviously obviously the Olympics were coming to London. Um and I think this really helped with you know, the the success of Skyfall, especially with the the short that they, they did on the opening ceremony. Um but in terms of film uh, they got some big hitters in in 2012. Four films got t- taking over a billion, which is which is huge, isn't it? Um, any guesses what those four are? Oh no, you put us on the spot. So 2012 was that the first Avengers film? Yep, that was top 1.5 billion, and obviously was Skyfall a... is 1.1. Yeah, was there a Disney film? Maybe a Toy? No, not a Toy Story. They no billion, did they? Go on. The Dark Knight Rises, of course, a billion, and so did The Hobbit: Unexpected Journey. The the rest of the top ten, it's it's all uh, it's all sequels: Ice Age, Twilight Saga, The Amazing Spider Man, uh, Madagascar Three, Hunger Games, Men in Black Three. So, yeah, but Bond was uh, Skyfall was second. But in terms of the actual film getting made, I mean, there were there were problems at MGM, and um, Sam Mendes, the director, who was actually approached to direct it straight after the release of Quantum of Solace. And so they wanted to get up and running and start get going. But MGM had problems. And mid-2009, they had $3.7 billion of debt. And their interest payments alone were $250 million a year. Now, that's a problem because they were only making half a, million, half a billion dollars a year on their their film library that they had at the time. And the recession which you know had knocked loads of stuff out had a big impact on their ability to to make make any money so they got an auditor in and in May 2009 the auditor gave the company a clean bill of health and, and said it's going to be fine they look like they're going to be on track to to solve this debt but in February 2012 they announced that it, it looked like they were going to be sold within the next 4 months and they said that their latest film, which was Hot Tub Time Machine, might be one of its uh, last films to to bear that MGM name. They were obviously it was a big worry because they got the James Bond productions under this banner. Um, so April 2010, Barbara and Mike, Michael they had to announce that due to the continuing uncertainty surrounding the future of MGM and the failure to close a sale of the studio, we have suspended development of Bond 23 indefinitely. 
we do not know when development will resume. And Barbara said that she had just had flashbacks of what happened um, in 1989, that huge gap in between uh, running up to Goldeneye. And obviously she didn't know how long this was going to go on for. Luckily enough, it was all resolved uh, later that year. So MGM filed for a bankruptcy on November the 10th, November the 3rd, 2010. Um, and then on December the 20th, MGM announced that the studio had come out of bankruptcy and Spyglass Entertainment executives Gary Barber and Roger Birnbaum became co-chairs and CEOs of the of the studio and everything was back on. Bond was, you know, could get into pre-production and get going. Yeah, it was a shaky time then for, for, for what was going on. I mean, imagine they, you said that 2010 that they announced that they were not developing, so that would have been two years after Quantum. Um, yeah. Yeah. So who have we got for director film? So as Brendan mentioned, it was Sam Mendes who was sort of waved in rather early. And uh, you perhaps covered this on your, your Sam Mendes uh, uh, installment, but he was tapped by a drunken Daniel Craig at uh, Hugh Jackman's party. He, uh, Mendes is an interesting fork in the road for this franchise because he's an Oscar winning director at this point. In fact, he won best director uh, for his very first feature American Beauty in 1999. And after that, he kind of struggled to like have a very successful follow-up. He did Jarhead, he did Road to Perdition, and these things were sort of more or less well-received, but not particularly uh, successful at the box office, I would say. And um, it comes to pass that... uh, One thing I love about Mendes is that in 2005, Entertainment Weekly asked him about the prospect of Daniel Craig as Bond, and he went on record as saying it was a terrible idea and that he hoped he hoped that Daniel Craig turned it down. <laughs> so there was probably a very awkward conversation between them at some point between 2006 and uh, and this conversation where they had uh, uh, some drinks and Craig, uh, the, as Craig characterizes it, he sort of spoke out of turn and, and offered Mendes the directing job and then had to call Barbara and Michael the next day and explain what he had done uh, with his tail between his legs. And they were actually very excited about this idea. And they said, would Mendes even want to do this? Um, and he said, he said he wants to do it. He, he gets, he gets a meeting with, uh, Barbara and Michael and Michael said, why would a serious filmmaker want to make a Bond film? And Mendez's answer was, well, Bond is a serious film. And, and that was sort of his, his take, his approach. Uh, you're going to get into screenplay in a, in a bit, but there, there was a screenplay in place that was during all of these MGM troubles that, that Brendan outlined, uh, was thrown out. Mendes didn't sort of see the appeal of it. And his, his uh, pitch was that the film needs to be about Bond only. He is the story, how he lost himself, forgot who he was, looked into the abyss, then rediscovers himself and is in some way reborn. Uh, so this was a kind of a pivot from where they had been going, which was a very M heavy story. And they kept the bit about M dying. And that, that sort of was the thread through all these different uh, iterations of the script. Mendes sets a kind of a pedigree in place for this. Again, we'll talk about the casting, but as an Oscar-winning director who had worked with Judi Dench on stage when he was 24 years old, he is bringing a talent. He's attracting uh, A-list talent. And I think that we, we'll, we can get into this later, but there's there's some pluses and minuses to stuffing your Bond film with A-list talent um, when it comes time to do sequels and follow-ups and whatnot. But uh, he's a significant hire here, and 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 he this I think this move, this drunken conversation that Daniel Craig has with him, sort of is a fork in the road for the rest of Craig's run. 
for better or worse. Absolutely. I mean, they'd had uh, sort of a a bit of a, a stab at it with Quantum of Solace. It hadn't turned out that well. I mean, Mark Forster was an acclaimed director, wasn't he, at the time? But um, Sam Mendes, as an Oscar winner, uh, you're right, it's a complete uh, change of pace for the Bond series up to this point. I mean, no disrespect to any of the directors that have made any of the Bond films, but they are, you know, craftspeople, uh, journeyman directors, whereas this, Sam Mendes, was a real um, flag in the sand to say, we want this movie to be special. And and, and, and time, time would shake out that maybe you could argue that this series should have journeyman directors as opposed to auteurs, but it was certainly an exciting development at the time. Well, it's something we often talk about, about painting themselves into a corner, and it really does begin with this movie, particularly. Um, but let's talk about this, rather than thinking about what's next let's and what's down the line, let's focus on this movie, because uh, I think there is a great story behind this. But um, let's talk about the script. So Neil Purvis, Robert Wade were hired to write their fifth James Bond film for Skyfall. Uh, but this time they would mix things up a little bit, as has been in the past. They often start the script and then they bring in another uh, screenwriter to polish it up. But this time they would start off as a as a trio and the third person in that wheel would be Peter Morgan. Um, and the plan was that Purvis and Wade would do a first draft and then Peter Morgan would do the polish and they would sort of send it backwards and forwards. Now, Peter Morgan at the time was an award winning TV and film screenwriter uh, who at this moment in in film history was known best known for his oscar nominated screenplays for the queen and frost nixon um, he also wrote last king of scotland damn united state of play and he just recently before skyfall had produced tinker taylor soldier spy which for my money is a uh, one of the best spy films of the 21st century so you can see the pedigree that they were hoping for from Peter Morgan. Um, and nowadays, Peter Morgan's best known for The Crown, I would say. He created that show for Netflix. Um, so their treatment, they're working together. As you mentioned, Phil, it was called Once Upon a, Once Upon a Spy. I'll give that another run. The treatment, as you mentioned, Phil, was called Once Upon a Spy. And that begins with a young M. And she's stationed as an MI6 agent in Berlin at the height of the Cold War. And she, in the story, has an affair with a KGB agent, uh, has a child. And then 30 years later, the son resurfaces um, uh, after his father dies and she, he comes back to blackmail M. And the, the, the film is going to end with Bond being forced to kill M. Um, so this idea of, a, of a, a noble sacrifice at the end of the movie. So um, the rumour is that Helen McCrory was, was going to play the young M. I don't know if you've heard this before. Um uh, and that's how she ended up being in the movie uh, in a different role. Um, I always thought Helen McCrory was bigger than the role that she got in this movie, but um, that kind of would make sense then if that was what was going to happen. But Sam Mendes, he wasn't that keen on Once Upon a Spy and, and Purvis and Wade also weren't that uh, taken with it either. They felt that Peter Morgan, he was wanting to make something more John le Carre than Ian Fleming. Um, and so... Um, the one thing that they did keep from that was M dying at the end. Uh, so Purvis and Wade worked on a new outline and they drew from, as they always do with their uh, Bond uh, scripts, from Fleming novels, specifically You Only Live Twice and Man with the Golden Gun. Um, and it has obviously got Bond returning to M after he's presumed dead, um, which you have in You Only Live Twice. And then, um, is it, is it, uh, yeah, and that's, he comes back and he's been, after being brainwashed, um, and then he's gradually reintegrated into duty. And actually, there's even a mention 
talked about golden gun there's a mention in skyfall about a, uh, a specific type of bullet that only comes from one place and you can sort of trace that back to fleming as well i think um there's also in this uh, early draft a woman who cared for bond um after he was killed and uh, living with some amnesia in a, in a fishing village who was based on Kissy Suzuki. And she then, in this version of the script, followed Bond to London and was pregnant. So this idea of the baby, of a child, Bond having a child, was something that Purvis and Wade had toyed with with Quantum of Solace and then were looking at again for Skyform. Um, Mendez agreed that they, they should tackle the darker themes of the books. And he said, if you've got a big franchise movie without a fucked up character, it's not worth doing. So, uh, again, that's a, a, something that may come back to haunt them. But um, the script evolved from there. And um, they, um, yeah, as, as you say, it sort of stalled at this point when MGM went into bankruptcy and the development had to officially cease. But during this time, Daniel Craig and Sam Mendes worked together. They reread the books. And they both unofficially sort of carried on working together on the script. And this new draft of the script was delivered in uh, November 2010. And this was the one that kept the creditors of MGM happy. They felt this was enough to keep the film afloat. It was called Nothing Is Forever. They had a character called Silver who was the villain. And there was going to be a, a bomb that goes off in the Barcelona subway. And then an ending where Silver follows M back to a safe house and kills her there. Um, Q was also considered for this uh, 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 version, but they'd uh, uh, had him as a more shabby character, an older, shabbier character. And they had Simon Russell Beale uh, reportedly in mind to play him. And Bond was going to meet up with him in a greasy spoon cafe rather than the, uh, um, uh, the gallery that we get in the final movie. But all of this being said, they none of them liked the final act of the film. And it was just weeks before the deadline um, that it was all changed to, for Bond to be taking M to Skyfall in Scotland. And they just reconfigured the whole of the finale away from Spain and to take place in the UK. Probably a huge part of that as well was the, the, the restricted budget because Quantum of Solace, I think, had been the most expensive Bond film ever, something like 250 million. Whereas this had a much more restricted budget and, and, and you'll see that as we go into the production where the compromises had to be made. Um, but according to AJ Chowdhury and Matthew Field's book, Some Kind of Hero, other titles that were considered for this film were Silver Bullet, Magic 44 and A Killing Moon. So this is where the script is now. And then one final rewrite came from John Logan, Sam Mendes' longtime collaborator. Um, and he focused on the character and dialogue. Um, he said the, the current draft was a great machine, but that Logan would give the f screenplay a distinct flavour. But like I said, the most important part, uh, probably of the plot that stayed throughout, was the death of M. I do love that the original draft, uh, or one of the earlier drafts, the villain is literally just called Javier Bardem. Yeah. It, you know, wishing it into the universe, you know. Uh, <laughs> smart, smart move, maybe. Okay, so the, the key crew, so um, Roger Deakins was brought on board as cinematographer. He'd worked with Sam Mendes on Jarhead and Revolutionary Road. If you go back to D, we covered Roger Deakins. Um, Dennis Gassner, he came back as production designer. Again, we've covered him if you go to G. Uh, the stunt coordinator, Gary Powell. Chris Cobb called back as a super, uh, special effects supervisor and visual effects supervisor Steve Begg and they'd all 
they're all returning. They all worked on previous Bond films. And then we have Daniel Kleinman returning to do the titles um, after mm. mi- missing the last one out uh, due to MK12 coming in to do the Quantum of Solace sequence. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a mixture of old and new and uh, it's something that ends up working out very well. Well, I think Roger Deakins is the is the star higher there, isn't he? If it, if it was like transfer deadline day, you know they've start, signed the star striker there. I think this this film un- it looks unlike any other Bond film, um, and I think they sort of try to have tried to repeat a little bit of that in in later films, but I don't think anyone ever quite captures um, light the way that uh, Roger Deakins does. I think it's a, I think it's a stunning, beautiful looking film. Beautiful. Looking when film. I watched it the other day and just a scene something like uh you know where bond goes to m's apartment yeah looks incredible you know yeah. that that has no need to look look that good but it and yet it does um yeah. it's fantastic deacons deacons is the you know the i don't know if you guys know who susan lucci is but she's a soap actress who was nominated for like 40 years in a row and never won but deacons was the susan lucci of uh, cinematographers being nominated for so many films and so so much excellent work over the years. And I think it's such a ballsy move that this becomes the first Bond film to be shot digitally. And, you know, any other cinematographer, you might grimace at that idea, but Deakins just knew he's he's unparalleled. And it's, it is potentially, give or take subjective taste about Technicolor back in the day, this is potentially the best looking Bond film of them all. Absolutely. Yeah. So who have we got coming back? Coming back, your returning cast is uh, not, not a big one, but uh, Daniel Craig, uh, who comes back after a four-year absence uh, at the age of 44. And uh, it's, it's always been interesting to me how folks, uh, a frequent complaint of Skyfall is that he went from a novice to being over the hill. But to me, I, I've always admired when filmmakers don't put continuity first, when they put their story and their themes first. And to me, this seems like the themes of this film of being used up by, by your, uh, your service and your, and your duty, uh, is the themes are sitting on Craig's face in this film. I mean, he looks like he's chiseled out of granite and he looks like he hasn't slept in a week. Um, and I think the film wisely leans into that. He's got miles on him and that in a weird way that sort of helps justify the four year gap because it looks like he's been through some shit between <laughs> quantum of solace and now, um, we are checking back on him after a significant absence and there's not a ton of dramatic value to be mined from acting as if no time had passed. So I think that adds an extra layer of depth to his, you know, what's become maybe, uh, maybe uh, undeservedly so, but what's become a, a specific milestone for Bond actors is what their third film has to be great. They have to stick the landing on that third film and, you know, it's accepted wisdom that, that Goldfinger was that for Connery and that Spy Who Loved Me was that for Moore. Uh, Brosnan, not as much with the world is not enough. But I think that somewhere in the back of a lot of Bond's fans' heads was this was Craig's third movie and it had to be, you know, had to be a classic. And I I just think that the way they facet the character in this film was a perfect choice for this film, for that time, for his third thing, to make it special. Um, You know, the the, the tired old Bond complaint of... uh, why don't they just send them on a proper mission? It's it, it, you've got 22 of those or, or, or so. So it's, it's, I think it's special. And, and I think that they made the right choice by having him be the old dog who has to learn new tricks. It feeds so much into that theme. Um, Judy Dench comes back. I think all actors relish a great death scene. 
Uh, and this was very likely a mean, very meaningful gig for Jane, Dame Judy. She'd, she'd done fine work in the series for 17 years. And to cap off the run with this performance must have been uh, something that she was very much excited about, very much looking forward to. Uh, I, there's not much else in terms of returning cast except for poor old under-served under, uh, Rory Kinnear, who, you know, honestly does a lot with a little. And he's a, he's a spectacular actor. If you've seen him in Penny Dreadful, if you've seen the, the film Men that came out, uh, the film itself is a little bit of a mixed bag, but he's fantastic in it. Um, and I think this franchise is lucky that, that Rory Kinnear keeps turning up for what's a pretty thankless role. He... Uh, and, and keep in mind, too, that, that Skyfall happens before all the all, it's all connected nonsense that comes after. And so this movie is all but disowning Quantum of Solace, yet Rory Kinnear comes back. And I think that that's just a real lucky move because um, there's not a real reason to bring him back. Um, they didn't bring Villiers from Casino Royale back in, for example. But um, I think, you know, he's a testament to the fact that Mendez loves good actors uh, and I was very amused by rewatching some EPK stuff where uh, Mendes sort of tries to take credit for Rory Kinnear uh, being in this movie. Like when he, when he was talking about assembling his Whitehall brigade and, and he throws Rory in there. I was like, no, you know, you don't get to pick him. I think he was already in there. But um, but uh, out of four films, this is one is probably the one where Kinnear has the most to do in a weird way, you know, yeah. because he's 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 M's right hand there. And she's such a significant uh, part of this film. Yeah, taking it back to what you were saying about Bond, and I know that the um, yeah the common complaint is this: he's gone from the young dog to the old dog in in the space of one movie. But uh, at the start of this film, he basically dies and comes back <laughs> from the from the dead, and I think that's sort of something that is easy to sort of forget. You forget, oh yeah, he's like you know wounded throughout the movie, he's on his last legs, but he has literally just died and been resurrected. So uh, you got to give him. A little bit of credit uh, there. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can always imagine what those in-between years had been, right? That's something. Well, that, I, yeah. I, have a friend, I have a friend who swears up and down that everything from Dr. No to, uh, I think, License to Kill happened between those two films. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if that holds water, but that's his, that's his head canon and, and he's sticking to it. So, you know, if, if you want to believe that he ran into Goldfinger somewhere in 2010, you know, you can. It, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but why not why not the brosnan films is that be because judy dench is in those was that the reasoning maybe i'm not sure i mean you know everyone's headcanon is a religion of one it's their own it's their own thing you don't you don't ask questions um so yeah that's that's your returning cast unless i'm forgetting anybody but i think that is it as far as who comes back so let's look at the the, the bond girls in uh in inverted commas we've got um a couple of um I mean, it's it's kept very thin on the ground actually. This movie for the, for for the for, the, uh, for the, the typical Bond girl character beyond obviously Naomi Harris's uh, Eve and uh, Judy Dench's M, you could class as Bond girls, and we'll talk about them in a minute. The main Bond girl is is Severine, and she is played by the French Cambodian actor Berenice Marlowe. Um, Robert Wade said, like many of the women in the Fleming books, she's toughened herself up because she knows what it is to have been abused at the hands of men. Um, and they basically looked around the world to find the right person to play this uh, play this character. But Berenice Marlowe was discovered in Paris by the casting director, Debbie McWilliams, who we've spoken about many times on, on this podcast. Um, and uh, Berenice, she said that she'd been struggling um, at this point with her agent, um, not getting her auditions, not getting her any decent roles. 
She basically took matters into her own hand, found Debbie's email address and just sent her a showreel. Um, they, I think they, they'd had someone in common that they knew. She just literally sent her a showreel. So she sent the tape to, Sa Debbie then sent the tape to Sam Mendes and then she auditioned for the film twice at Pinewood and then the, um, the second time was with Daniel Craig. And that's when she got the role. So she really just um, created the, the part for herself, really. Um, she hasn't talked a huge amount about the film, but uh, when she was asked about being a Bond girl in an interview around the time, she says, I like I, I see her like a unique character in a unique movie more than a Bond girl, because when I think Bond girl, for me, it's very abstract. It's a kind of label. It has meaning, but it's not speaking to me. It has no resonance. So I really see her as a unique character that I have to build and give life to putting away the Bond girl thing. Um, and when talking about her favourite Bond girls, she chose Grace Jones and Famke Janssen, which I think are great choices. Um, I don't think you see much of either of those two in her character, unfortunately. Um, but I mean, she hasn't done a huge amount after Bond of a high profile nature, to be honest. I looked at her credits and the, the, the biggest thing to me was she has a, a role in Terence Malick's Song to Song, which was that... Um, sort of indie music type film that Terence Malick made, but um, I haven't seen her in a huge amount of, of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the weaker parts of this film is is Sever Severine's character and the way that uh, she's treated and the way that she's offed, I think. Um, and I think that's a, 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 a fair criticism, to be honest. Um, yeah, there's I, something vestigial about it, I would say, though. It's, it's the last... It's maybe the last Bond girl that gets that kind of treatment. Yeah. In in a film, you know, go and and I think that you have to sort of do it once too often to realize that it's time to stop. Maybe mm. it, it it's a it was a, an ugly speed bump maybe for the franchise. Um, but I think I, I, yeah, not to defend it, but also a lot of it's rooted in in, in Fleming as well. Fleming loved the damaged uh, female character. Um, and if you get too close to Bond, you know what happens, you get killed. Um, it's just, I think, the way that her death is handled is, uh, is it leaves a poor taste in the mouth, I think. Um, but from the woman that gets killed to the man that kills her, who have we got as villains, Brendan? We've got um, Javier Bardem as Raul Silva. Uh, he is a, an ex-MI6 operative who has turned into a uh, terrorist who is hell-bent on uh, going after M. Uh, wants to publicly discredit M and, uh, and and carries out a number of attacks um, on the way. So originally, Kevin Spacey was considered for a role in Skyfall. Apparently, it's this role, a role of a villain. Uh, Sam Mendes originally offered him the role because they'd worked together on American Beauty. Hindsight being a wonderful thing, maybe that's a good thing that that never panned out. Um <laughs> So Javier Bardem actually was offered the role of Renard in The World Is Not Enough. He turned it down because he felt he wasn't ready linguistically. Little, little did you know, all you have to do is stand there and hold hot rocks. So you probably could have done it. Um, but he, he's, in terms of this character, you know, he, he said, uh, as long as there is a human being behind the character with some kind of conflict, as we all have, then it's interesting to play anyone, whether it's a villain, good guy, bald, long hair, tall or short. Here, there's a broken person. What I like most is there is a clear motive to kill. And I think that's something we have lost in the films that have come after this. We've had villains that were like, I'm not sure what, what they want. 
this is so streamlined. We know exactly what it wants and what it's out to out to do. Sam Mendes um, basically wanted this character to just be uncomfortable, uncomfortable to be around, um, make whoever he's in in company with, you know, make their skin crawl. And that's why Bardem gets the role because he's able to to do such a role. And obviously, there's the um, the talk about Silver's sexuality with that scene. So Bardem said that the character's sexuality was part of the game. Sexuality was there as something important to create the behaviour of being uncomfortable. From uncomfortableness, we brought the sense of humour. So John Logan said about it, he said, some people claim it's because I'm in fact gay, but that's not true at all. Sam Mendes and I were discussing. There were so many scenes in which Bond goes mano a mano with the villain, whether it's Dr. No or Goldfinger or whatever. And there's been so many ways to a cat and mouse and intimidate Bond. And we thought what would make the audience truly uncomfortable is sexual intimidation. Really interesting take on it, you know, flipping it. You know, we've seen it the other way around. Let's let's see Bond being subjected to it. And um, I, yeah, a, a great idea. And, and that scene actually, there was a lot of pressure to remove that scene. Um, but Barbara Broccoli resisted and she, she insisted that it was in the final release. Bardem uh, said also about the character, it was, he said, uh, Silver is really confident about himself in a weird way. And uh, he thinks he's the most beautiful man in the world. So yeah, he, he relished playing this and he, and he loved playing the role. Um, he enjoyed working with Sam Mendes. Um, so much so that he, uh, he went up to Sam Mendes one day and he said, Sam, I love you. Thank you for giving me the chance. It's been great, but I have one favour to ask. I know the tone of the Bond music is going to be for Daniel, as it should, but please just give me one while I'm on screen, please. And he did. He gave it to him. So he was on screen while the Bond theme plays out um, in a scene. And that's because he, he asked for that to happen. But yeah, uh, Sam Mendes said um, doing a Bond movie affords you the kind of flamboyance that you can't get in purely naturalistic movies. As an actor, you get an opportunity to do things that, frankly are hovering a foot above the ground. They're not rooted in reality. Javier always has a slightly theatrical about him. We just tweaked it in this movie. And he's up there. He's, <laughs> he's definitely he's definitely one of the... He's one of the most unnerving, unsettling Bond villains. Yeah, he's, he's, he's great. Uh, what I love about Silva as a Bond villain is that he's so tied to the theme of the film that he's the personification of the theme of the film. He, mm-hmm. he represents consequences and accountability and and you said brendan that he he's uncomfortable to be around because these characters don't want to think about consequences and accountability and he's forcing bond to think about the choices he's made in his life and he's showing him this is where you're going to end up i was you this is how it ends for you are you sure you want to stay keep going down this road and there's a thematic resonance to that that i don't think exists in another bond film i think Mm -hmm. that there's you know, there's there's a cartoon character element to Bond villains that we love, and that's what we show up for. But that that this villain had that extra layer makes it so special to me. I think it's such a a dark, deep thing. And and he he, uh, it's almost like if you've ever gone for drinks with someone who's been fired from your job, and the mask is off, and they're just giving you all of the horrible things that you kind of already know about your job, but they're just vocalizing it at the bar to you. And you're like, yeah, this place sucks. I know. I'm s- I know. I know. I know. Um, there's that element taken to its darkest, darkest uh, mm. uh, end point. I think. Something I noticed as well, re-watching it recently is how they signpost 
uh, the idea that you can um, do great damage from a great distance in the Q scene, because Q says, you know, I can make do more damage from my bedroom with my finger, blah, blah, blah. And then cut to half an hour later and Silver's threatening him and he's saying, you want me to take down a government? I can just do it right here. And you're right, it is the flip side. You can see that MI6 is doing these things and then Silver's doing them for his own good. Um, and I, I love that. What do you guys think of the look for Silver? I remember when I first saw it, um, yeah, I found that the whole thing quite unnerving because it looks like he's got his face pulled back as well as having a very bizarre wig on as well. Yeah, I don't want to be unkind, but I don't know if if Javier Bardem's nostrils really look like that, or if they did something. But like his his nose is asymmetrical, and it's it's a subliminal thing. But when you when you look at a face, you you gravitate towards symmetry. You you that's what we call attractive in in, in Western culture, like a, a symmetrical face. And his face is not. And I think that there's and if it's if it's already like that, then Mendez is exploiting it because like the camera's kind of shooting up his mm. nose and parts and he's he's a very severe looking individual and to me although it's a very problematic trope i do think that there's something uh very fleming about having a a, a true grotesque as your villain and so his look is I, you know chef's kiss i love it yeah <laughs> and that blonde hair it just doesn't it looks un unusual on a on a latin man like like him i know i looked in the book as well the uh, the making of book and he's doing costume tests and he's just got his normal hair and it's just it's just javier bardem but by transforming him like that you get silver there's no other henchmen though or anything in this movie are there well we've got ola rapace as uh patrice of course, yeah um but but that is it you know it's the whole cast it's very streamlined isn't it um mm. But he actually said that his face was digitally inserted on the stuntman just before the, the jump at the beginning when he was riding the bike. But the rest of it, it was him. And that was part of his um, his casting was he had to test out. He said he could do all this stuff. And they're like, right, well, you need to prove you can do it. Um, and it, he wanted to do that actual jump at the end, but they didn't let him because um, of the risk. But, but yeah, so many of the stunts, most of the stunts are him. Um, which is pretty pretty impressive, yeah. Mi six. Mi six. Well, we touched on um, Q somewhat, and how it, in one version of the script he was described as shabby and tubby, uh, and I think it's quite fortunate for all of us, especially the the shippers on Tumblr, that that didn't come to pass. Uh, <laughs> instead, you've got this very cute young man uh, who's a absolute reversal of the Bond Q dynamic. Ben Ben Wishaw as as a are sort you know uh, opposite the luddite dinosaur uh wary of the new generation that is bond in this movie q is um again he he like like silva he's there to strengthen the theme of obsolescence that sort of keeps reoccurring in the film bond is confronted by the future of mi6 and it's this guy in in who brags about working in his pajamas uh in before before uh his first cup of tea um and i think that it's such a fun reversal of the what you had for you know twenty movies, whereas Q is the cantankerous old man and Bond is the young asshole teasing him. They flipped it and they and they sneak it up on you and and you don't you know thinking back to twenty twelve you don't realize that you're being served that up until you're in the National Gallery and that scene is transpiring. You're like oh oh that's what they're doing. This is brilliant and I really really loved it and and uh, Wishaw once again we. we we are staffing MI6 with award-winning actors 
which I think just adds to the specialness of, of Skyfall. And, and Wishaw, of course, appeared with Daniel Craig in Layer Cake. Spoiler, he kills him in Layer Cake. Um, <laughs> but he had a very interesting career in, in independent films before this. You know, he played played Bob Dylan in uh, Todd Haynes' film, I'm Not There. He played Keith Richards in the Brian Jones biopic that Purvis and Wade wrote. Um, just a very accomplished actor. And, and that's very much of a fabric with the rest of the supporting cast. Uh, whereas, and we don't mean it as a slur or a negative, whereas previously these roles were staff, staffed with, you know, workhorse journeyman performers. You know, Desmond Llewellyn's just a, was a working actor who lucked into the gig of the lifetime. But um, now you've got a guy who's probably going to get an Oscar at some point playing Q. That's that's exciting, I think. Um, similarly, you've got Naomi Harris as uh, the worst kept secret of 2012 cinema, Eve Moneypenny. <laughs> I just I just wish they didn't think we were all so dumb. Like like. It's it's not that clever. We all saw it coming. Um, but Harris uh, made a splash in 2002 in Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later. Uh, Boyle also directed her on stage as Elizabeth in his stage production of Frankenstein. She did a couple of parts of the Caribbean movies. She got herself an Oscar nomination for Moonlight. She showed her action chops in Michael Mann's Miami Vice in 2006. Um, and she is a... She's about as good a money penny update as you could hope for, I would say. It's she holds her own. She's they introduce her as a capable field agent, um, which is different from the original script where she was uh, had to be informed by Bond that she was dating an enemy agent, which is a, a sort of a little plot detail that was lifted from the short story 007 in New York by Fleming. And uh, this was a bit controversial. Not, you know, we we we. I don't know if you guys pay attention to the internet very much, but we we talk, uh, we see a lot of people just banging a drum about anytime there someone's cast in an, as a new race or gender swapped and that sort of thing. And I don't remember a whole lot of flack about uh, Naomi Harris being cast as Money Penny ten years ago. And it's weird that we've gotten worse in ten years, but anyhow, um, the flack that that was caught at the time was that you you introduced Money Penny, you reinvented her as a field agent, and then shoved her behind a desk and. Mm. And I think that that's a valid criticism of the film, but I think that there's a rewrite or two away from her just sort of voicing her own agency about why she opted to leave the field rather than field works. Not for anyone. Like you said, James, I think that if she owned it a little bit and there, there's some, there's some uh, depth left on the table there in terms of um, she grounds herself, but her choice is due to an action that M forced her to take which again feeds back to these larger themes of uh, M's consequence, the consequences of M's choices, um, making life or death decisions about those in her employee. So Money Penny, I think, is about an eight when she could have been a 10 in terms of like just really nailing a character uh, reinvention. Um, but she's great in the role. She's so fun to watch. It's, it's a cool new dynamic. I think that the shaving scene confused people and they all thought that they hooked up and I don't think they um, then the other MI6, uh, newbie is Ray Fine as Mallory. And, you know, Ray Fine obviously is uh, a very accomplished actor, Schindler's List, uh, The English Patient, lots of other stuff, a lot, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of award nominations on Ray Fine's plate. He didn't get the Oscar yet though. Um, but I once said, I think around 2007 or something, I'd said somewhere online that the next M should be played by someone who a decade or two earlier could have been Bond. And I'm convinced someone listened to me. 
because Ray Fine, <laughs> Ray Fine in his prime, like literally could have been Bond and literally could have been Bond in that he met with Cubby Broccoli apparently in 1994 and said it was a great meeting, but acknowledges that they had already had their eye on Pierce Brosnan and, and uh, self-deferentially says that he doesn't think he would have been a good Bond. But Mallory himself looks like a guy who could have handled himself in the field. And, and then come, come the, uh, the, the courtroom scene or the hearing scene shows himself to be pretty capable at the time. And again, just, just another example of Mendes stacking this deck with a staggering amount of exceptional actors filling roles that for decades have been played by more journeyman types. Coffee? Medium sweet. Two, medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? So, August 2011... And uh, a newspaper in Serbia called Blick publishes that Bond 23 is going to be called Carte Blanche and it's going to be an adaptation of the continuation novel by Jeffrey Deaver, which forces Eon to publicly deny there's any link between Bond 23 and Carte Blanche uh, with a public statement, a rare public statement about that. So that's quite interesting. But that was one of those rumours that really flew round at the time. But... Just a few months later, in October 2011, there are internet sleuths spot that the domain Skyfall uh, has been registered, linked with James Bond, and the sort of the game is given given away. And then on the 3rd of November 2011, a press conference for the film was held at the Corinthia Hotel in London, where the film's title was announced. And I was there. That's how, that was my little uh, link with Skyfall. Yeah, I was there on that day. Um, First time I've been to the Corinthia Hotel and um, yeah, it was in this big swanky ballroom type place. They had all the cameras set up and uh, yeah, it was quite a special moment to be there and see all the names on the on the, on the plaques. Um, and they announced the title there and the, sort of the main cast and Sam Mendes were there. They said a lot of different things there. It's like one of those press conferences don't give a huge amount away, but uh, Michael G. Wilson confirmed that it was London's worst kept secret that Bond 23 was going to be called Skyfall. And it was... When they were quizzed, all Barbara Broccoli would say was that Skyfall would have some emotional context that will be revealed in the film, as in the word Skyfall. And Purvis and Wade talking about where the name came from uh, at a later date. Uh, they had taken inspiration, I believe, from a book by John Buchan, and he was one of Fleming's favourite authors. He'd written 39 Steps, and one of his uh, novels was called Green Mantle, which you can sort of see a thematic link between that sort of single word name of a place that has a resonance um with skyfall and obviously it becomes skyfall is the name of bond's ancestral home um and as someone pointed out to me after no time to die skyfall ends up being the way that bond goes out of the world as well as where he came into the world you know with the sky falling literally on him so i don't know if that's foreshadowing or it's just a happy coincidence but uh um, but at the press conference, Mendes, Sam Mendes describes Bond as experiencing a combination of lassitude, boredom, depression and difficulty with what he's chosen to do for a living. Which, like you say, Phil, they're the themes of the film, right? Um, but yes, we've got title. Now it's time to jump into production.
There's a lot of shooting on location in London on this one. Again, the budget restraints mean that uh, while the film, as you'll, you'll hear, the film does go abroad on location, but the reins are being pulled in. So 7th of November 2011 uh, in London, we start to begin. Um, and this is the first Bond film to be shot digitally and the only. So they shot scenes in London Underground. That Now the production crew actually used the Underground for five months of filming. And it's only on screen for 10 minutes. And that, that money, they paid a lot of money to Transport for London, um, which then goes into TFL's budget for the year. So, you know, it's 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 good to put money back into London, um, but the James Grant, who's the location manager, the supervising location manager, he said, access to the underground can be tricky, but you have two basic options: you carry all the equipment down the escalators after midnight, which is labour intensive and means you have to be a bit economical with what you choose to take down. Um, alternatively, you you can have the option of moving equipment in on a train that can be loaded up at Stanmore. So it sounds like a big operation, you know, loading a tube train full of all your all your kit and, and, and getting it down there. Um, I also imagine there's uh, quite a bit of issues with um, connectivity, like internet and stuff back then. Anyway, yeah. um, I, know, I know it's a it's a bit better now. Um, but he also said there's a lot of red tape to get through filming on the underground, but obviously it's all there for good reason and designed to prioritise safety. Now Chris Corbold. Uh, the special effects supervisor, he said he came up with the idea for the tube train crash and Sam Mendes was on board with it. But then it dawned on him the enormity of what he'd come up with. <laughs> Corbold had to build a full-scale replica tube train and then the stunt was actually done on the 007 stage at Pinewood. But they shot that sequence using um, 11 remote cameras to get it from all different angles. And Corbold said it was a one-shot deal. If I hadn't worked out, it would have been two million quid to reshoot. That was pretty nerve wracking. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. Um, but it's a great scene and it really pays off. Um, so, uh, uh, I might, did you get to the bottom of it? Did they use a real tube train to crash it through? I don't know if I. Remember. A full scale replica. A full scale replica. replica. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, they also shot uh, in Smithfield Car Park, uh, they shot at the National Gallery. Uh, shot in Southwark, uh, on the top of Whitehall, Parliament Square, Charing Cross Station, and Tower Hill. And there's a lot of scenes that were were cut where M is, is um, paying respects to the MI6 that were killed in the explosion. The scenes were shot at the Greenwich Royal Naval College, and then the exterior of M's house. They were shot at 82 Cadogan Square, which was once owned by John Barry, and this was because. He died in 2011, so it's a nice little nod ah. to John Barry there. St Bartholomew's Hospital was used for where Bond, when Bond enters MI6 Underground HQ. Um, the meeting between Q and Bond, that's obviously the National Gallery. They shot that while it was closed at night. Department of Energy and Climate Change offices were used for that roof, rooftop scene, the iconic rooftop scene. And then the explosion at MI6 headquarters. So they actually closed Vauxhall Bridge and Millbank uh, to get that. The explosion was put in digitally. So unlike when for The World Is Not Enough, which they actually built a replica, this one was just done in post. But on a lot of this, there was a nice uh, nice bit by Bardem. He said, because one of the early shoot, shooting days was in London, he said, 
about Judy Dench. When she opens her mouth and looks you in the eyes, you're like, wow, this is a big deal. You feel the force of nature against your chest. I looked at them both and I forgot the lines. There was a, <laughs> there was a silence and Sam said, cut, what's wrong? And I said, sorry, man, I've just realised I'm in a James Bond movie and M and James Bond are looking at me. So, yeah. There you go. Even Bardem gets gets starstruck. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out Daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Uh, so, yeah, the, 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 the idea is that Bond will draw Silva away from bystanders. London uh, MI6 itself and bait him to follow him to Scotland for a final showdown. And Barbara Broccoli described Skyfall as the last place on earth Bond wants to go to. It's the most painful place for him, the place where he heard his parents were killed. So there's like a, it's a heaviness to this. Um, they head up there. The finale was planned for Duntroon Castle in Argyle, but after, shortly after filming began, the location was changed to Glencoe. And though it's set in Scotland, Bond's family home was constructed on Hankley Common in Surrey using a plywood and plaster full-scale model, which is a good thing because they fly a helicopter into it, uh, <laughs> using, using 150 sticks of dynamite and several gallons of fuel to blow up the helicopter at the lodge. And um, Deacons, uh, who we talked about earlier, shines in this whole sequence because he, he has to take him from sort of this gloomy daytime to this firelit nighttime sequence. And, and if you, I, I think maybe the third time I watched it in the cinema, I, I was like really paying attention to the gradual like lighting choices in the sequence that takes it from like that, that sort of blue daytime into, into the nighttime. And then, and then the, the fires become sort of the, the, the light motivation for it. It's just beautiful. And um, it's, also where we find Kincaid and, and there's an apocryphal story that this role was, and it was a game of telephone because th- there was, as, as I understand it, there was a conversation about maybe having Connery play this part. And then the next time you read this story, Oh, Connery, you know, was in rehearsals for the part. And then somebody said something about filming rehearsals. I'm like, well, they don't film rehearsals. I don't, I don't know that Connery was ever really in serious consideration for, for, playing the Kincaid role. I don't know if you guys have heard differently, but to, to me, it was, it was an acute idea that correctly got squashed very early on. Yes. It kind of, it, it kind of makes sense uh, because you could have had the role, you could have had the, the, the whole Skyfall sequence without a character there. And that's, that's the only thing that suggests to me that perhaps they were thinking of a little bit more for Kincaid. 
but I think the having this sort of link to the past there does really help the sequence and the fact that it's um Albert Finney um a great another great prestigious actor in the role um makes it worthwhile um but it's a great what if isn't it yeah, yeah, it's fun to think about, but but I watched that story just catch fire on the internet until it was like, oh, there was screen tests, there's footage of Connery, and I'm like, I don't, I don't think that that happened. Um, but Finney's uh, excellent in the role, and it, it it might be one of his last on screen performances. I'm not it sure. Is, if he's it's his last, yeah. It's his last. Okay, well, he went out on a good one. Uh, the moments between him and M are really genuine and heartfelt, and you and you get a little insight into into Bond's character. Uh, as a child, which is really interesting. And then we again use Kincaid to drive the theme home of like old versus new of maybe technology can't save you. Maybe, maybe the old ways are the best or some, you know, sometimes I like to do things the old fashioned way. And um, it turns into a three person showdown against a siege, which people of a certain age have come to compare to home alone. Uh, I don't care for that comparison myself. I think that the, uh, (laughs) I think that the finale is closer uh, to the third act of Straw Dogs or Outlaw Josie Wales or maybe Assault on Precinct 13. There's plenty of siege movies out there where folks like rig booby traps and, you know, a lot of them don't have Macaulay Culkin in them. So I think, you know, expand your, expand your knowledge base. I beg you. Um, of course, the siege is where we blow up the DB5 real good. Um, Sam Mendes is on record saying that the DB5 is in the film solely because he had the toy as a kid and he wanted to have it in the movie. And I I have to say, I I love that motivation because it speaks to the idea that the entire film came from a place of feeling and heart, not from uh, a sort of Mm -hmm. tethered, strapped down, continuity laden idea. It's like, this is my Bond movie. And at the time, Sam thinks he's only going to make one Bond movie. It's got to have the DB5 in it because it meant something to him. Um, And I think we've all seen Bond films that don't come from that place. And I think... Uh, we should be thankful for when they do. Um, people get upset that the DB5 is clearly not the DB5 from Casino Royale. The steering wheel's on the opposite side. Where did the miniguns come from? There's an ejector seat that M knows about. What's, what, what is the backstory of this DB5? And again, there's something really exciting and romantic to me about the idea of the film surrendering to a kind of dream logic, to, to surrendering to a collective headcanon that isn't tethered to quantum and has nothing to do with anything, but like, we're watching a Bond movie. Of course, he's got a DB5 with an ejector in it. What Bond movies have you been watching? So that's, you know, when you watch the next film, Spectre obsesses over continuity and trying to put a bow on everything. And the, I think the difference in results speak for themselves. Um, but the car itself was played by various uh, performers. One was a rusty British racing green 65 model that was found at auction for under $400,000 and uh, dutifully restored by the production. And for some of the more wear and tear moments, three separate 3D printed replicas of the DB5 were made and they blew up one of them in the film. Mm. I love that idea of the dream logic as well, because um, and, and, and doing something because it feels right rather than because it necessarily makes sense. Like just I instantly think about uh, the world is not enough where the Q-boat goes underwater and Bond adjusts his tie as they're underwater. Why? For what reason? Uh, other than it makes sense in the in the scope of a James Bond film, um, it's absolutely stupid. Uh, and, and and if if you're picking apart the 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 leaps in logic in a James Bond film, you might not know what party you're at. 
I would read in my opinion. Um, absolutely, absolutely. The um, one thing I was thinking about when I watched, I rewatched it last week was driving to Scotland in a car that old. The MPG is going to be terrible. <laughs> they would have been. They would have <laughs> they'd 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 had to fill up. Times. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. <laughs> And the suspension was have been not comfortable seats, the air conditioner, the no heaters. Yeah, poor old M. Or as King K calls her, Emma, which I think is a lovely... Uh, a lovely yeah, I like one. that. Yeah, it's yeah. A ter- She had a terrible last day, didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> That's not how she wanted to go out. Um, so, yeah, as, as we mentioned, with the restrictions on the budget, incredibly, Turkey, um, the pre-title sequence in Turkey, is the only major international location shoot on this film. Um, which is a unprecedented, perhaps. I'm just trying to think um, of another Bond film which only has one major international location shoot that uh, doesn't spring to mind. Um, they originally had looked at shooting the pre-title in India. Um, I know Sam Mendes has spoken about this on uh, several occasions, but they couldn't make it work due to sort of logistical problems. They also looked at Cape Town as well. Doctor No might be the only film that had that number of locations. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So Sam Mendes, now you're talking about this idea of making this film from his heart and doing everything that he could. Now he he talks about envisioning this pre-title sequence as a Russian doll action sequence, whereas he reveals what you think it's going to be and then he opens it up and reveals another layer and then opens it up and reveals another layer just with the action escalating and escalating, which I think is a great way of describing this uh, the pre-title. But they filmed this um, uh, in and around Istanbul uh, in the um, sort of spring t- 2012. And um, uh, so Bond makes his first appearance in that first scene coming out of the Deutsche Orient Bank uh, building in, a, in Istanbul in a place called Emino, Eminonu. I think that's how you say it anyway. Um, but you've got Bond chasing Patrice uh, and he's chasing the hard, for the hard drive um, after finding the agent dead. And they run through the Grand Bazaar uh, in Istanbul. Um, and this chase takes place in and around the real Grand Bazaar. Um, and um, Gary Powell, he again coordinated this sequence. Um, and then they move on to motorbikes and it goes across the roofs. And in a move that they would repeat in no time to die, they had to spray the roads and the roofs with Coca-Cola to make their bikes grip on there. And as you said, um, uh, Ola Patrice, uh, sorry, um, Ola Rapace did a lot of his own stunts there. So then the tra- when it moves on to the train, that was shot in a separate location called Adana. And that's a, uh, a city um, uh, close to the eastern border. And Alexander uh, Alexander Witz, who's the second unit director, he spent a month there and then uh, and then filmed in and around Turkey for two two months. Um, and the speeding train itself proved to be uh, quite technically challenging. Um, but Daniel Craig and Ola Rapace did a lot of their own stunts while the train was travelling at forty miles an hour while they were att- attached to it with wires. So uh, put that in your pipe, Roger Moore. Um, <laughs> But Sam Mendes says that the original idea for this was that there was going to be a motorbike chase atop of the moving train. Um, And again, talking about what you said about the DB5, putting it in, he said this idea came from his son, who he asked what he wanted to see in a James Bond film. And he said a motorbike chase on top of a moving train. So I would love to have seen that. Maybe one day we'll get that. But yeah, talking about watching them shooting on top of the train, Barbara Broccoli said, we're in Turkey for a train sequence and I had my heart in my mouth the whole time. 
Daniel and Ola were fighting on the roof of this moving train that moves. Um, and they were, what they were doing was just heart stopping. Daniel's the reason why the action works as well as it does, because he sells it. He's up there. And I think the audiences know, know, uh, audiences know that. So then we've got Bond uh, after the titles are played. He's presumed dead, but he turns up on a beach. And that was filmed uh, near Fethia, Fethia uh, at a place called Coca Calis Beach. Um, and the bar that they built there doesn't exist. They built it just for the movie. Um, that's where the scorpion drink bit happens. Uh, but that's that's basically it for, for Turkey. But um, yeah, you'd think they also filmed in China as well. You would indeed. But again, we have budget restraints. So, um, yeah, Sam Mendes did confirm that China would feature in the film um, and shooting was scheduled for Shanghai and other parts of China. And uh, Logan actually said that they deliberately looked for locations that were in opposition to, to London with a, an exotic, exotic quality for more places for Bond to be uncomfortable. So it's all about make it put him out of his comfort zone. So the scenes uh, with, the, with the actors were not actually filmed on location in Shanghai, but in the UK. So there's a virgin active pool in Canary Wharf in London, and that was Bond's hotel pool. Um, Ascot Racecourse stood in for Shanghai International Airport um, and London's Broadgate Tower was used as the lobby and entrance of the Shanghai office building. The Golden Casino, Golden Dragon Casino was constructed on a soundstage uh, which had 300 floating lanterns and two 30-foot high dragon heads lighting the set. And again, this is all credit to Roger Deakins because these scenes set in Shanghai they look fantastic. The production did actually get permission for the second unit to get aerial footage of Shanghai, though, um, from a helicopter that the Chinese government loaned them. Um, and the first image, the official image to come out uh, for Skyfall, actually showed Craig uh, on set at Pinewood with a rec- recreation of uh, of a skyscraper of the skyscraper in Shanghai. Um, in, in that scene in the casino where he's on the where he steps onto the dragon, I just love the reference um, to uh, live and let die. I just I'd only really it only really clicked you know, the last time I watched it. I was like, oh yeah, that's what they're doing, and that's what I like about this. The the this film, the the nods to past bonds are so just they're just in the film rather than being obvious like Dying of the Day, which was rammed down your throat. This this is much more subtle. Yeah, and all credit to the film. I don't think I ever would have realised that they'd never filmed in China because the way that the production design is done um, and the, the the cinematography, you know, they really sell that rooftop fight um, with the the glass the glass uh, reflections and all that sort of stuff to fully convince you. Um, so I think they, I don't think this film suffers from its restrictions. In fact, I think it probably helps. Um, to a certain extent, um, just just remembered something though. Do you, you know the, the 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 pit with the dragon pit? Um, do you remember there was this weird story that went round that Daniel Craig was wearing gloves in the scene and they had to be CGI'd out? Did you ever hear that? Oh yeah, What's I wrote that? I wrote a I wrote a very long debunking of this uh, once upon a time on a site called Birth Movies Death. Yeah, a, a very popular 
UK personality on Twitter told the story that, that Daniel Craig was really excited about these gloves uh, that he'd bought in a shop and, uh, and he was having a miserable time on set and, and he and Sam Mendes hated each other. It was filled with all these sort of half-truths that were sort of like, no, that happened on Spectre. They sort of had the rough time. The Skyfall was a party as far as everyone knew. But he, he painted this picture that, that the shoot wasn't going well and that Daniel Craig was miserable and he showed up and wanted to wear these gloves with his tuxedo. Now, I don't need to tell either of you that, that Daniel Craig knows better than to wear leather black gloves with a tuxedo. That's just not going to happen. But this guy had everyone convinced that Daniel Craig wore black leather gloves throughout the floating dragon sequence, like ordering the martini, gambling, all with black leather gloves. And he's like, and if you look, you can see his hands are kind of weird looking. And I'm like, I don't know. This, is, this doesn't seem right at all. <laughs> and, and just through context clues and through uh, obsessing over the film and knowing the film, I came to realize that the photo, the first release photo that Brendan mentioned earlier, shows Daniel Craig in the, the glass, the jellyfish, you know, projection sequence with his uh, palm print sensor PPK that can only shoot with his palm print and he's wearing black gloves. So right. that's, that's where this rumor came from. They had to go back. They, they do an insert shot where you show him taking off a glove, which is part of a reshoot. But in some of those shots, he's got a real smooth hand uh, because they digitally <laughs> took away the glove in, in, the, in the apartment scene, not in the floating dragon casino scene. Like they somehow forgot that plot point that he can't shoot this gun unless it can read his palm print. And so they shot that whole scene where he's wearing black leather gloves and, uh, and had to go back and sort of digitally create. So, so there is a half truth to it then. Um, but the, the, like the, the, under, the undertone was that like Daniel Craig was like, he'd gone like ego crazy and he felt he could do whatever he wanted on set and, and that they had to spend millions fixing his mistake. That was like the, the, the thrust of it, wasn't it? Yeah, but the, yeah, the idea that he would wear those gloves with a tuxedo was like my, a red flag for me. I think he has more sense than that. Um, so, but it's a great story. And yeah, if you, if you Google, like, I think if you Google Daniel Craig Skyfall hand scandal, you'll find the, the article <laughs> that I wrote where I'm like playing like armchair detective about the whole thing. It's, it's, I had fun with it. Well, thank you for, thank you for that. We'll have to link it in the show notes for sure. There you go. Are we up to Silva's lair? Yeah, let's do it. All right. I sound like a broken record, but Silva's, Silva's island lair is yet another thematic metaphor for this film. It's a place that went very quickly from something new and fresh to rubble and ruin. And that was sort of the idea. The Silva demonstrating to Bond that a place that can be vital one minute can be, uh, you know, dust the next. And it's, and it's also a great example of, of showing what kind of damage Silva can do from the shadows. He orchestrates narratively in this film, he says he orchestrated a false alarm about some sort of nuclear leak or something in the, in the, uh, on the Island to cause a panic and, and a mass exodus. They all leave the Island and they leave it. And Silva takes the Island because it's, it's been abandoned. Uh, it's based on a real place. They did not shoot the real place. This is another one, a game of telephone, where if you look on the internet, you'll find a site telling you that they filmed on an Island called Hashima and they did not film on that island. This is this is a set. This is digital uh, skyline shots. It is they didn't actually go to this island, but uh, the island is based on what's called Hashima, and it was um, what I've read was included after Daniel Craig met with Swedish filmmaker Thomas Nordenstad uh, while shooting *Girl with a Dragon Tattoo*. Nordenstad produced a short documentary entitled *Hashima*, which you can find on Vimeo. 
about this real island. And he was telling Craig about it. Craig was taking all these extensive notes and the, and this filmmaker didn't think anything of it. And then he went and saw Skyfall. And he's like, oh, he put, he put the island that I did a documentary about in, in Skyfall. Um, but in the late 1880s, uh, there was a lot of coal found on the seafloor underneath this island. So Mitsubishi bought the island, mine, was mining coal, and they would ferry miners to and from the work site from Nagasaki. And then they decided it would be easier and cheaper to just build houses for the workers and their families on the island. So they made these multi-story concrete apartment blocks, schools, bathhouses, restaurants, even a graveyard were built on this island, on, which is basically the space of a football field. Uh, and in 19, by 1959, the island was home to over 5,000 people, uh, including Japanese employees, their families, forced laborers from China and Korea. Uh, it housed 1,400 people per two and a half acres which was uh, at the time thought to be the highest population density ever recorded in the world. Wow. So mm-hmm. crowded, crowded island. Uh, and, and, and it's uh, Exodus is not something so dramatic as, as in the film. It just uh, in the sixties, petroleum replaced coal. Uh, Mitsubishi closed the mine in 1974 and the inhabitants, as you can imagine, were all too happy to get the hell off that island. And, and so that it was abandoned and it's, it's abandoned to this day. Uh, and there's a documentary, like as I said, on Vimeo that sort of shows, like, at, as Silva illustrates in the film, because they just left everything. Like, there's, you know, it, it looks like people were just, like, beamed off the island and, and everything was sort of left where it was. Um, beyond that, the great piece of trivia that I love about this set is that it was built specifically to be the, uh, the appropriate size so that when Silva comes out of the elevator and delivers his monologue, they they paced him to see how long it would take him to deliver the whole speech and how far would he walk. And then they built the set around that speech, <laughs> which I mean, I just love that kind of detail. Mm. That's just brilliant. That is such a great setting, great location. Um, very memorable, isn't it? Um, it, it really is. And, it, and it's, it's another example of this film kind of when people say they wanted like a traditional bond film, there's a traditional bond film in here. Like all of the beats are in place uh, they're just all kind of inverted or spun a little bit differently or, or put on their ear, you know, going from like, you know, the, I don't want to get ahead of myself or anything, but you know, the, the going to MI6, flirting with money, Penny, having the meeting with M, then the Q scene, these are all staggered right where you'd find them in Goldfinger, essentially just, they're all kind of spun a little differently. And there's a, there's a formula bond film, quote unquote, hiding in Skyfall. And, and the mm-hmm. lair scene is another great example of that kind of inversion where it's a lair, but it's not, not a lair you'd any, any other previous Bond film would have chosen to live in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It feels so isolated. That's what I love about it. It's a mm-hmm. more, more making Bond uncomfortable. You know, it's, I think it's great. Yeah. There's shades of Scaramanga to it in terms of how mm-hmm. there's just nobody else around. Yeah. What, was Inception made before or after this? Inception was before this, wasn't it? Yeah. 2010, yeah. Because I always uh, put those two sort of that's the scene with this and then the scene in inception where they're walking down the street and then the, the sea is coming up this abandoned city and i always feel like they're not connected in a way but like no this... but maybe they are i mean you know i think mendez has not been shy about how how much this film is in conversation with all the things christopher nolan was doing within genre at the time how, how the dark knight made mendez realize that you could take a genre film and do something actually kind of deep and meaningful with it and I think that there's probably a straight line between Heath Ledger's Joker and and, and Silva, um, and 100%. so it, it, 
down to down to inception, which itself has got its own Bond influences. There's back, it's backwashing into, into Mendez's contemporary Bond stuff. That's really interesting. Well, I mean, that pretty much wraps up our production uh, stories for this movie. Um, so let's talk about the, the, the post-production now. In September 2012, it was announced that this would Skyfall would be the first Bond film to have an IMAX sequences and would be released a day early in IMAX screens. So what you're just saying there about how Christopher, the, what Christopher Nolan's doing in blockbuster cinema becomes to influence Bond. Bond is playing catch up here because this is what uh, Nolan's been doing with The Dark Knight. And uh, was Dark Knight his first IMAX film? Um, anyway, it's it's sort of yeah it's all tied in with that um and it's obviously the imax i mean i'm a huge fan of the imax experience i think it's the, it is the ultimate way to see a movie if you can but um the idea is that you get a larger aspect ratio um and so um but with this one i think the entire i think the entirety on on skyfall gets a bigger aspect ratio um it was optimized to take advantage of the imax screen so you could obviously see more um and in a press release uh, uh, released by IMAX, Rory Brewer, the president of worldwide distribution for Sony, said, we think IMAX audiences are in for a special treat. We think the larger aspect ratio takes great advantage of the IMAX format. And that what's most exciting is that our filmmakers are making a movie that delivers everything James Bond fans could ask for. And so, like you said, Roger Deakins shot this on digital. Um, and they, uh, yeah, they were not sure about shooting it for IMAX I think initially but I think once they saw the results they were really taken with it um, and so ultimately the finished final result is that you get to see more if, of the movie in the IMAX version now I don't know if the IMAX version has ever been released for home release um, I know you can watch some of the Dark Knight movies in IMAX format at home and you can watch the Marvel movies at home in IMAX aspect ratio but I don't think you can watch Skyfall at home in that, in that. So if there is ever an expanded release for that, then uh, obviously would be good to see. So on to the music. And um, we have had five David Arnold composed Bond films up to this point in a row. Um, but now we've got Thomas Newman coming in, who has worked with Sam Mendes on American Beauty, Rotop Edition, Jarhead and Revolutionary Road. So it kind of makes sense that he's going to bring him on board. Um, Thomas Newman himself said there's obviously a huge amount of expectation in terms of what a James Bond score is. I really didn't feel an obligation to meet up to those expectations. I wanted to defy them in a way that was pleasing and compelling as opposed to making people feel that what I was doing, something different for its own sake. The opposite of Eric Serra, I would say. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, he's, that sounds like something Eric Serra would say. <laughs> But he wasn't shy. <laughs> he wasn't. He wasn't shy to use the James Bond theme, and he was rather keen on on trying to get it in there. Um, Michael G. Wilson also requested that Newman weave um, Adele's song into the score as well, so that's they interlink quite nicely together. Um, in terms of David Arnold, he he said that they obviously he picked him because they'd worked together. You know, Mendes and Newman had worked together. Um, rather than because Arnold was working with Danny Boyle at that point, um, composing for the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics. But the song is a great... This is this is one of those moments where I think everybody 
was expecting it to be Adele or, or it, it was not a particular surprise when it was announced that it was Adele. It just seemed correct. And uh, she wrote the song with her regular collaborator, Paul Epworth. It had orchestration by J.A.C. Redford and uh, was released on the 50th anniversary of uh, the release of Dr. No on James Bond Day, 2012. Um, it's, I don't have a ton of trivia for you about this, but I, I will say that it, I think it's noteworthy that it's the first song who, that where the lyrics are about platonic love between Bond and M. Uh, if you, if you listen to these lyrics, it's very, it's very different from other Bond themes, which are very romantic and flowery. I don't mean the Chris Cornell one, obviously, but um, as far as ballads go, it's, it's a, uh, more meaningful because it's not, they're not generic, these lyrics. These lyrics very much apply to this film and this particular relationship between Bond and, and M, and I think that's pretty special. Um, not to get ahead of the award stuff, but it is the first Bond song to win an Oscar, which seemed to have kicked off a tradition of giving each new Bond theme an Oscar, uh, which, you know, a bit of a triumph in 2013 and a bit of a There Goes the Neighborhood vibe in 2016. Um, when Spectre won. Uh, I would I would call this the last the last good James Bond film so far. Uh, the last, sorry, the la- I would call this the Boy, last. Good. That's correct. That's correct as well. <laughs> I would call this the last good James Bond theme thus far. Um, it, it it hits the notes so well. It's 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 aware of the tradition that it's in, but it's taking it a little bit someplace new. And I think it plays so well with the title sequence with the with the uh, with the Daniel Kleinman uh, credits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It um, is absolutely one of the all-time greats, I think. The the lyrics are, are really interesting as well. For the I, I just I read them, read the lyrics. I was like, right, okay, all oh, right. It's the film. It, you know, she was obviously given the script, um, mm-hmm. and that was one of the reasons why she did it. But she's basically the film is is in the lyrics. What happens? Skyfall is where we start. Well, that's Bond's life, and then mm-hmm. it ends at Skyfall. It's 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 lyrically genius, musically genius, and and performed with unbelievably yeah you can make the argument that the uh the lyrics to you know my name are similarly specific to the film um but this just nails it Mm -hmm. and i think i think if if as you say brendan they they gave her the script or showed her a cut of the film or or whatnot that sadly they, they took that example into the next two films with with much lesser results i think sam smith's movie uh lyrics try to do that they try to. In fact, the the Sam Smith theme to Spectre and Billie Eilish's theme to No Time to Die sound as if those two individuals had never heard another Bond theme except for Adele Skyfall theme. Do you know what I mean? M- much as Another Way to Die sounds like he had only heard Chris Cornell's theme, <laughs> there's there's a, a short-term memory to the Bond themes that came after Skyfall, I believe. That's, that's I think that's a completely fair assessment. Um... Um, but yeah, I think you're right. They they do really fit well with Daniel Kleinman's titles. Like you say, this is his sixth James Bond titles um, after he sat out uh, Quantum of Solace. And you can return to that episode to learn more about why that happened and who, who did those ones. But he'd made these ones with Framestore, the acclaimed visual effects house, Oscar winning visual effects house uh, here in London. Um, Talking about how long it took, he said, Daniel Kleinman said, we met and talked before Christmas 2011 and then delivered finals on September 2012. So it was a long process, although I didn't work on it every day, of course. Um, 
and Daniel Kleiman's done a really big, long, in detailed uh, interview with, with a website called Art of the Titles, which I would heartily recommend if you ever want to learn about Bond titles. They've got analysis of all of them on there. And you're right, it's a, it's a really broody, dark um, title sequence that actually has, again, a way of telling the whole story of the film within the titles. But you don't really realise until you go back and watch the film a second time that they, they're they giving it everything away in that. Um, the initial ideas, uh, in fact, sorry, one of Kleinman said one of the first images that came to him was the idea of the women's hands pulling Bond underwater um, because they knew the Bond was going to be falling into water. Um, but his, his initial idea with girls like columns and statues with people appearing and disappearing appearing didn't go down well with Sam Mendes. And he really wanted to show Bond going underwater and into an underworld in an Alice in Wonderland style. He said he described it as Bond's point of view, what he sees in the moment of death, his life flashing before his eyes. And so you get this really interesting sequence where you see Bond going through his life. He goes through training. He... Um, he's uh, in a shooting range in some of it um daniel craig himself actually appears in the sequence as well and he filmed with daniel Kleinman for it um he said i needed to have daniel craig in the sequence for two reasons first the broad idea of the piece is his point of view and the camera and therefore and the camera and therefore the audience are seeing the action through of the titles through his eyes and the second reason for having daniel craig in the titles was to explore the theme of the doppelganger as villain which again is something that becomes a big resonant theme in there. Silver being the sort of the, the dark doppelganger of him. And also the Hall of Mirrors, you know, harks back to the man with the golden gun. It's a lovely, uh, it's a lovely nod um, in that. Um, Daniel Kleinman says the music came in fairly late, but the demo helped him to lock down some of the images and sync them occasionally and loosely to the lyrics. But in the end, the final song was four minutes long, where what they'd been working on was five minutes long. So they had to make some adjustments there. And looking back over his tenure, he said, in many ways, it's the most complex sequence. But in others, it was one of the easier ones for me to create. And the reason for this is that the technology has improved immensely since the era of GoldenEye. Um, obviously, one big controversy around Daniel Kleinman's uh, work within the titles for this movie is the gun barrel, which in keeping with the previous two movies, comes at the end of the film. So, now, talking about the reason for this, <laughs> bringing it back to what you said, Phil, about Sam Mendes doing what he feels is right, but not necessarily what we would expect. They basically found that if they put the gun barrel at the start, the transition to the first shot of the film, which is Daniel Craig walking down the corridor with the gun pointed at the camera, was just too similar. And so they took it out and they put it at the end. He said he considered putting in a establishing shot of Turkey between the gun barrel and Daniel Craig walking down. But it just just it just felt, um, what did he say? Like, uh, it felt like a cliche. So they put it at the end. Yeah, and... I kind of call bullshit on that, though. I think, <laughs> I, I, I think he knew that he was using that hallway shot instead of a gun barrel. Like, if you if you're making a Bond movie... And you're sort of in the back of your head going, yeah, we start with the gun barrel. You're, you're not going to say, and then we start with a shot where Bond is exactly the same size as he is in the gun barrel in this hallway. He knew what he was doing. This is a case, like I said, I, I love his DB5 logic and I love a lot of what he brought to the film. But this this particular moment to me is a case of a director thinking he's above the material. Um, you know, you, Martin Campbell putting the gun barrel where he put it in Casino Royale, brilliant. The 
I don't under quite understand why it couldn't be at the beginning of Quantum of Solace, but whatever. But by this film, it probably should have been at the front. So what you think that he, he shot that first scene and he was imagining that it was going to be a gun barrel of, of its own? Well, I think he shot that scene knowing he had no interest in putting the gun barrel at the front. Like for some reason, he'd got it in his head that, that we don't do that anymore. Because if Mark Forster did it, why do I have to toe the line? And he was like, I'm not going to be the one that puts it there. And then, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But uh, to, to me, the novelty had run out of not putting it at the beginning at this point. And put your damn establishing shot in there of Turkey. Um. <laughs> so Daniel Kleinman says, he says the added benefit of this was that the film ends with Bond sort of returning to being the Bond we know of old. He's back and ready for action. No longer the disillusioned and weary character he has played in the movie. Uh, so the gun barrel gives a he's back kind of rush and allows the audience to cheer. I thought it was a really good decision. I'm fairly sure the gun barrel will resume its former place in later films. Um, but yeah, I guess the the idea is that it appears at the end of Casino Royale because that is where he then becomes the Bond that we know. Uh, and then I guess the logic for Quantum of Solace is that it's because they're saying it's a two part movie. It's kind of he's still not quite there. I don't know. I think it's a. I think you're right. I think the the, the problem came with what they did with Quantum of Solace rather than uh, necessarily the decision that was made for this one. But the decision was made, and 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 we have to live with it. Yeah, I mean, Casino. It, it's the gun barrel's origin story in a weird way. You know what I mean? It's giving you a narrative backstory for that, which I love. But the other thing I wanted to say about the titles, real quick, is that uh, in 2012, without knowing the film and not knowing that they're telling me the whole story, what what grabbed me was how Fleming they were. The the graveyard, the death's head, all of all of this sort of, and the, you know, Bond as a silhouette. All of that stuff felt more Fleming than I think anything Kleinman had given us before. I really loved it. They are great, great titles. Okay, so on to the release. But before the release, we've got the Olympics. Um, and in the lead up to the release of Skyfall, Danny Boyle, who was the director of the opening ceremony of London 2012, he'd suggested that James Bond accompanies the Queen to the Olympic Stadium. Um, so in the film, Bond is summoned to Buckingham Palace by Queen Elizabeth II and escorts her to helicopter to the Olympic Stadium where they both jump from a helicopter with Union flag parachutes. Now, at the time of recording, uh, Queen Elizabeth II has, has passed away. She passed away yesterday, but which meant this morning there was a really good interview with Frank Cottrell Boyce who wrote this. And it's called Happy and Glorious. And he gave some great insight into uh, how they came to get the Queen involved. So Tracy Seawood, she was the producer. She'd gone to the uh, the palace to talk to dressmaker, the Queen's dressmaker, Angela Kelly, and saying, we need, just need to know what she's wearing on the night so we can sync it all up. She's like, what, what do you mean? You know, no, we just want to make sure the person we get playing the Queen is wearing the same thing. She went, oh, no, she wants to do it. <laughs> it's like, and they were like, what? Danny Boy was absolutely shocked and Angela Kelly said, um, I asked uh, him and Edward to give me five minutes so I could ask the Queen. I remember the look on, of shock on Danny's face when I said I would ask Her Majesty straight away, but there's no point in weighing around with these things. If she said no, that would be the end of it. I ran upstairs and luckily the Queen was free. She was very amused by the idea and agreed immediately. I asked if she would like a speaking part. Without hesitation, Her Majesty replied, of course, I must say something. 
After all, he's coming to rescue me. So she asked whether um, she wanted to say good evening, James, or good evening, Mr. Bond. And she chose the latter. Angela went down, delivered the good news to Danny Boyle, uh, who almost fell off his chair. And the Queen's only stipulation was that she could deliver that line. Daniel Craig said about it, he said, it wasn't supposed to be funny, it was supposed to be serious. She was fun, incredibly game, we had a short space of time, and I was a bit grumpy as it was my day off, and suddenly I'm at the palace with the Queen at her private chamber. He says, and she improvises a little bit. She was supposed to be sitting at the desk, and she asked if if she could write, so she pretended to write. So in terms of the parachute jump that was performed by um, stuntmen Mark Sutton and Gary Connery, and so then after that film is shown, the Queen enters the stadium just by the normal means she, she's there. But also, again, because we've been making statements in the House of Parliament today, Boris Johnson, he was mayor of London at the time, he said that uh, one of the um, one of the leaders from a, from another country was amazed that the Queen did the jump. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, don't know if he was just uh, tw- twisting the truth a bit, but <laughs> I think it was him that was surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, in the film, Bond wears the same Tom Ford dinner jacket as he does in the casino and the Silver Island scenes in Skyfall, as well as all the promo material for the film. Um, and Happy and Glorious was filmed during March and April of 2012. So, in terms of the premiere for Skyfall. Uh, it was on the 23rd of October 2012 at the Royal Albert Hall, Hall in London. Um, it was attended by King Charles III, who at the time was Prince Charles. And Charles asked for the money raised from that premiere was donated to charities that served former or serving members of the British intelligence agencies. Um, and then the film was released in the UK three days later on the 26th of October and in the US on the 8th of November. So what did the critics think? The critics uh, were massively behind this film. It got a 92% uh, score on Rotten Tomatoes uh, from the critics, 86% from the audience. Uh, So some of the reviews, Time Magazine said, the cool accomplishment of Skyfall is that it seems a necessary rather than mandatory addition to the year's popular culture. In the New York Times, Manola Dargis called it a superior follow-up to Casino Royale. Uh, quite a few reviews at that time said said they liked it better than Casino Royale, and I think that that sentiment has mellowed in the ten years since. But the Atlantic called it uh, quote among the most ambitious imaginings of Bond to date, dark, supple, and punctuated with punctuated with moments of unanticipated visual brilliance. Dana Stevens of Slate and Rotten Tomatoes assures me this is a positive review. Says Skyfall leaves you wondering whether this incarnation of the character has anywhere left to go. It's the portrait of a spy at the end of his rope by an actor who seems close to his. Um, it was it was rather well received at the time. And and my own review was that I, I thought it did a very interesting sort of push-pull of taking the whole thing forward, but also echoing the past in a way that was probably harder to pull off than, than we give it credit for. There's there's a great balance of echoing the past while, while moving forward with Skyfall that I do not think they've recaptured in the film since um, box office wise, it made 1.109 billion against an estimated 150 to $200 million budget. Uh, no other bond film has done that. Thunderball adjusted for inflation is the one that's come closest. But uh, again, that, that seems to like, that's something to celebrate in 2012, but it, it created a, 
a goalpost, I think, for the films to follow, where anything that didn't make a billion was seen as a, a disappointment, which, you know, is not really a fair way to judge these films. But Skyfall was had fired on all cylinders and, and created the new gold standard for the franchise in terms of what uh, MGM certainly hoped would happen with the other films. Skyfall was at the Oscars nominated for cinematography, score, sound editing, and sound mixing. And as we mentioned earlier, it won the Oscar for best original song, which is the first time that's ever happened for a Bond film. Uh, BAFTA, it won for outstanding British film. It won for best original music for Thomas Newman. It had nominations for supporting actor in Javier Bardem, supporting actress with Dame Judy, uh, nominated for cinematography, editing, production design, and sound. Um, and I just want to call it the editing because I do think that Stuart Baird, who's one of our best living editors, uh, is the secret weapon of both Casino Royale and Skyfall. And he's, he is the reason these films can sort of get away with some things that I think Spectre does not. And, and, uh, and the, the uh, and No Time to Die did not manage to pull off. But Baird is, is literally one of the best working uh, editors and he doesn't get enough credit for this film or Casino Royale. So I just wanted to mention him in these nominations here. Right. Well, that just about wraps up uh, the story of the film. Let's turn now, as we always do, to what our followers on, on Twitter think of the movie. And there is um, a full range of, of responses in the, the three word reviews that we asked for. Um, I'll start with the good ones. Best Bond ever, according to Ross. Roster 192. Um, Krishna says it's an all time classic. Haphazard Stuff calls it proper anniversary film. Um, uh, Space Odds 1985 says Pl Fleming be proud um, what else have we got uh, D Chantry Bond suddenly old that's something we've addressed um, Double O Kevin uh, again something we've talked about but return to formula he's also said Daniel Craig's best um, Richard Gills goes for the quite obvious better than Quantum definitely um, Martin Pierce says divergence from formula so we're talking about a return and a divergence. Again, something we've we've discussed. Manly Apparator says has aged well. Um, again, well, something we'll talk about in a second. Um, George Aldridge, friend of the show, says only perfect one, which is bold. Um, and Adrian Hurley also calls it best Bond ever. Um, but on the flip side, Jens Helberg says it's the most overrated. Um, and yeah... Another one says, uh, where is it? Quantum of Gemel says, third act disappoints. And someone else, AJD says, first half's good. So I guess that's a good uh, sort of uh, starting point for, for sort of the rounding off by talking about the legacy and the, sort of the reputation of the film. Phil, you've already touched upon it in that it was very well critically received, but perhaps people have cooled off on it a little bit now. Why do you think that is? You know, I'm not sure. I, I think that part of it is that uh, part of the tradition of being a Bond fan is shoving the current model out the door and wondering what's coming next. And, and sadly, with the pandemic and with other delays, Craig has had the most protracted version of that phase of his Bond uh, tenure. I, I think no other Bond has promoted their, their current film while listening to more noise about who's going to play him next. Uh, and, and maybe that's a pitfall of like announcing that it's your last one and letting everybody know, as opposed to Die Another Day, where we didn't know that that was our last time with, with Pierce. Um, 
but it's a pastime. It's a pastime to wonder what's coming next. And I think that a 16 year run was it 16, 15, I guess this is 16 this year. He's still the standing bond, right? Well, no, he's blown up. Never mind. Uh, I think that a 15 year run is going to invite those kinds of things and people are going to get antsy and impatient and ready for the new thing. And, and there's some backwash or some retroactive uh, revising of that that sort of thing where you kind of cool on the stuff that was presented to you recently. I think Spectre kind of retroactively made Skyfall a little worse in people's minds by, by trying to tie it together, by trying to make it all one long Marvel cinematic universe type story. That's part of the problem. But I think it's, Honestly, if you look at it, it might be the mo- only standalone film that Craig has done. And I think that alone makes it special. I mean, forget what they tell you later. This is a movie that has a beginning, middle, and an end. Whereas Casino and Quantum are kind of two parts. And Spectre and No Time to Die are certainly two parts. But Skyfall is its, is its own beast and it's a standalone. Um, and I think that that's significant. Uh, Brendan, have your feelings changed about this film over time? Yeah, I think I went a bit cold on it. Uh, and then watched it recently and it re- it really it's held up well for me and uh, i think i think it is the two most recent films that have done damage to skyfall because that is in the back of my mind like them trying to retroactively fit everything together and my main takeaway from watching it most recently was that that should have been daniel craig done that would have been a perfect way to bow, bow out, I think. Yeah, it's hard to to, to the problem. I guess the the problem was the success of Skyfall uh, is also part of the downfall for the rest of the of of the era. Um, I, for me personally, I loved this movie when I first saw it, and I've loved it every time I've watched it. Um, the more I watch it, the more aware I am of there are some narrative pitfalls that uh, I think uh, are hard to justify um, but as we said many times if you spend too long looking at the potholes of Bond films then um, you're going to find them in every single film in every single era I think um, I saw this with a with a live orchestra as well uh, the Albert Hall a few years ago and it was absolutely astonishing uh, just a whole other experience um, and I think you're right. I think you've got to remember what it was at the time rather than what things became. And I think I remember when I saw No Time to Die, my insta reaction was it's not as good as Skyfall. It's not as good as Casino Royale. That's that I, that's how I knew I judged it. It was like it's good, but it's not as good as those two. And that was my instant reaction. And I'll stand by that. Um, I don't think. Well, let's not get into No Time to Die because that's not where we're going. But um, I think. Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's where I'm at with it. But um, I mean, in terms of the um, the narrative stuff, um, what do you think? That, what, what do you think are the sort of the main complaints about it? And do you think they are justified? No, I, I don't think they're justified. And I and I think that um, as we as we discussed, like a four year absence had to be sort of explained or leaned into, and and they did that very well. And I think that it serves this theme that that sort of makes it a perfect bond film for a middle-aged man to watch because it is so there's there's what happens and there's what it's about 
and what does what happens is is the this happens this happens and what it's about is about a guy who realizes too late in life that his job sucks and that he can't do anything else anymore and there's there's a very dark reading to the end of skyfall where he he is trying to push back against what they've turned him into he drags his boss to his childhood home this is who i was look at me pay attention to who this is and she dies instead and um so so there's and this is something that's been sticking in my head, but there's the last moment of the film when Mallory says, are you ready to get back to work? And I think someone thought it was meant to be a triumphant moment when he goes, with pleasure, M. But it's so robotic that to me, it's a bleak, dark ending that he, he has given up control. As he says to Mallory earlier, hire me or fire me. It's entirely up to you. He doesn't know what to do with himself anymore. So he goes back to that desk to give to be given new marching orders. And it's maybe a super dark ending that also, as Brendan says, is the perfect ending for Craig's thing. It closes the loop. You, if he never made another one, if they never made another Bond film, like that would have been an, a perfect sort of eternal dropping him back where we found him in 1962 kind of moment. But yeah. with a very dark spin of the fact that like they've they've used him up, he knows he's been used up, and he can't do anything else anymore. So what else you got for me? He goes back to the desk to get another set of marching orders. There's something quite haunting about that theory. You know, it's like he can never leave. Yep, he's in that. He's stuck in that loop. Yeah, chilling. Shining hotel just here forever. Mm. I, I would say something that I, that sticks out to me now, and it did stick out to me at the time, was the way the silver uh, villain plot. Um, in that it was something that happens a lot at that specific moment in time in, in movies where the villain got themselves captured and that was part of their plot. Um, it happens in The Dark Knight. It happens in Star Trek uh, Into Darkness. Um, and then it also happened in this. And when it happens in this, it felt like I'd seen it too many times. Um because the, the the idea that he would know to get captured and then have all the different aspects of his plot, the next parts of his plot that would come in, like he would be able to orchestrate having a tube train crash through the roof at the exact moment where they exactly were, um, is, a, is a contrivance. Um, and I think that stuff becomes a little bit glaring at that, at that point. Um, Do you guys have the rehearsal over there uh, in the UK? No. Yeah, I've, I've watched the, the Fielder show. <laughs> oh, I'm aware of it. I haven't seen it. I think maybe Silva hired Nathan Fielder and they did rehearsals <laughs> to plan for every outcome. And, and Nathan had it all set for him. And so that he knew which way to go on the flow chart at every, at every turn. That's the only thing I can think of that makes um, Silva's plan make sense. Maybe he's tried it with 001, 002, 003, 004. There, he's, there you go. He gets to 007. <laughs> it finally cracks it. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I think we've addressed most of the most of the complaints about this film. I, personally, for me, I think it's I think it's one of the all time great Bond films. I don't know if it's top five for me, but it's definitely top ten, um, definitely top seven or eight, maybe. I mean, I know I'm stretching it a little bit here, really sitting on the fence with it, but um, I do think it's uh, it's hard to beat. And I think as a as an entry point for a modern Bond fan, it cannot be cannot be denied that it is a great one. Um, Along, along with Casino Royale, but I think in a way it's slightly more, there's more to, to grab onto, I think, for a casual fan in, in this one than there perhaps was in uh, in Casino Royale, my personal opinion. It's also slightly zippier than Casino Royale, I would say. Yeah, It is shot out of a cannon a bit. I, I always thought that, that the, it just moves in a way that mm. Bond films tend to not. 
uh, and that's fun. But you know, Craig's Craig's run is a run is a run of outliers. Every film is sort of coloring between the lines of the things you'd seen before. It's not just Bond on another adventure, but this is the closest one you get to him doing a standard adventure. And I think as such, it's it's not his. I don't know if it's his best movie, but it might be his best Bond movie, uh, if that makes sense. Because Casino Royale, I think, is the best film of the five. But this is a Bond movie through and through. And I think that that should count for something. Well, I think that's a good place to end uh, this episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Phil, thank you um, so much for coming on and, and, and talking to us about this this movie. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to do it. If people want to find you online, how do they? Uh, what are you up to? What, how do they get hold of you? I'd rather not be found online, but if uh, if folks want to go to Fangoria.com and, and look at what we're doing over there, uh, maybe subscribe. If you're interested in horror, uh, you know, we, we publish a magazine four times a year. We we uh, have a website that's updated every day with content. And, uh, you know, there, you, you cannot live with by Bond alone. So come check out Fangoria. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, where do people find us online, Brendan? At James Bond A to Z on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to email the show, the email is podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. You're probably too late to send in your uh, Bond movie moments for our 60th anniversary special, but we uh, please send them in if you, uh, if you want to. We are now in the middle of editing those, and um, they will be published for the time of the 60th anniversary special, so uh, keep an ear out for those. Um, so on that note, it just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy. With music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. this was a very very exciting story i was also very pleased that as um, as there was a danger that we weren't going to make this one that in in the end it did um, it did happen it is lovely to do it's thrilling part to play um and you get to you know to be a huge figure of authority and you get to boss him about and um and th- there is a very special relationship i think between between bond and m <laughs>